Welcome to the Empath and the Narcissist Podcast, where you regain your sparkle back after narcissistic abuse. I am your host, Raven Scott, and I welcome you here to the show. If you are new and are enjoying this podcast, help me help others. Rate and review. Free yourself from narcissistic abuse and draw long-lasting, powerful boundaries. Get your free workshop now at ravenscott.show forward slash free dash workshop. This conversation today with beautiful empath Jennifer Elizabeth Moore was such an amazing conversation. I could talk to her for hours. She is the author of Empathic Mastery, a five-step system to go from emotional hot mess to thriving success. We talked about how to shield yourself from dark energy. What does that look like? What are the differences between empaths and empathy? And even dove deep into codependency and a whole lot more. This is such a wonderful, enlightening conversation that I know you truly will love. And her book was so amazing, such a beautiful tool for highly sensitive and empathic people to really allow you to easily see your pain and suffering, understand it, give you the tools to heal it and sit with it, how to recognize what's yours and what isn't, how to release the toxic energy you absorb, how to protect yourself physically, emotionally, and psychically. And this book also shared with me how to replace negativity with light and positivity and how to act and live in alignment with my highest good. It is such a beautiful book. I highly encourage you to go to Amazon and grab your copy and read it after you listen to this amazing conversation. I'm sure you will want to. Supporting intuitives, lightworkers, and creatives to use their ability for good, Jennifer Moore is passionate about helping high-sensitive, empathic women as one of 21 of the United States, 21 Emotional Freedom Technique, EFT, International Master Trainers, and a mentor and healer, she has made her way to the Amazon bestseller list as the author of Empathic Mastery. Along with this, she hosts a must-listen podcast, The Empathic Mastery Show. Intuitive from the get-go, Jennifer experienced her first prophetic dream when she was just nine years old and has been navigating her extrasensory awareness ever since. You can find her on www.empathicmastery.com where she has a quiz as well as on Instagram, Empathic Mastery. Now let's dive into the conversation. We are back with another beautiful conversation I'm excited to have with Jennifer Moore. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Raven. I am so excited to be here. It's such a pleasure always to talk to those who are tapped into understanding that they're empaths. And I'm really excited about diving into this topic about empath versus empathy. And Mm -hmm. what is the crucial differences between an empath versus empathy? However, before we dive into that, I just want to learn a little bit more about you just like kind of a summary of your backstory. Like, how did you get into writing your book about empaths and empathy and, and get into this work? 
Um, that is a very long story, but the short version of it is, as the uh, subtitle on my book, which is a five-step system to go from emotional hot mess to thriving success, suggests I was really a hot mess. And for me, I have been, I was born into my sensitivity. I started having prophetic dreams when I was nine years old. I have picked up on the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, and the sensations from the world around me. But when I was much, you know, for many years, especially as a child and a young adult, I thought there was something wrong with me. And I didn't know that the reason that I was feeling so out of sorts so frequently, and I could not make sense of why I felt this way, because there was nothing going on in my life that necessarily correlated to my distress, I, um, I really thought like I was struggle. I believed that I was struggling with a lot of mental health issues. I thought that I was broken. I had a raging sugar addiction and I just really didn't know. And I was really lucky to find a good psychotherapist when I was in my late mid to late twenties who happened to be very psychic and very intuitive, who started to help me to tease out how frequently when I started to feel distress, it was after being in the, in the presence of other people who were in a state of distress and that I had picked it up. And so that was sort of the very beginning of a journey for me of realizing that as a highly sensitive empathic person, I was very vulnerable to feeling other people's feelings, thinking thinking a variation or a version of other people's thoughts and sort of spinning out as a result of it. And so I started to cultivate my skills as a healer. I spent over 20 years working as in as a tattooer, offering that as a healing art. And I, but at the same time, I also am a lifelong learner and have a mad passion for learning healing modalities. And so I brought a lot of healing to my work as a tattooer. And I continued to go down this path and sort of find more and more information. And Basically, what I started to realize was that almost all of my clients were also who were struggling with these issues were also highly sensitive and empathic. And so maybe about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now, I went, oh, my God, this is what's going on. And I realized that I had spent at that point, like upwards of two decades learning how to navigate my sensitivity and learning how to understand what it means to be this kind of person and why we need better coping tools. And so I sort of knew there was a book in me and then many things happened and I pivoted from my brick and mortar business, thankfully two years before the pandemic broke out and wrote my book and started teaching a lot more and working with a lot more empaths, both individually and in groups. And basically, here I am. So long version of the story, but uh, hopefully that gives you a, a good snapshot of who I am and what, I, yeah. what I'm here no, for. Yeah, no, and I know that you can go even deeper and go into all the details. So that was a beautiful snapshot. And it's funny you say you're a tattoo artist because I'm embarking on, I'm, I'm turning almost 40, I feel like, oh, and yeah, this year I'm like, I want to get a tattoo and I want to get it on my side and I want it to be like the thing that scares me the most. And I want it to have like a moon and a snake and all that. So that's really interesting. You're saying that it is a very 
healing modality? You know, it has been before tattooing became kind of relegated to the sort of um, sailors and bikers and kind of the bad old boys that it was kind of notorious for back in, you know, starting in like, I don't know, like probably World War II and beyond. Now it's much more of an art form and there's a lot more custom art and a lot of things. But before sort of it became, it came into sort of mainstream popularity over the last hundred years, it has been used as a healing art in many, many, many different cultures. And you can find evidence of this actually in um, like, mummies and bodies that have been found in bogs and things. People have found tattoos on thousand-year-old preserved bodies. And often what they were finding was that the tattoos correlated with like places that indicated um, either congenital defects or, um, you know, indications of injuries or things like that. And so people have been putting prayers and energy, energetic symbols for health and help on people's bodies pretty much since we probably like stepped on a sooty stick and discovered it was going to leave a mark. We've been, we've been marking ourselves and doing this. And my tagline used to be putting prayers on people's skin and helping truth and beauty surface. And that was a really big part of it. So I just, I have two things to say. One is um, 40s is the begin, like it gets better and better. And something people said to me before I hit my 50s, which was so encouraging, is just you will love entering into your 50s because with each decade, the less Fs you give about what other people think of you. And by the time you're in your 50s, you're kind of like, whatever, peoples. So um, welcome to the welcome to the beginning of the rest of your life. I promise you it gets better. It really does. Yeah, I am. I'm excited. I'm excited. Um I just finished reading a book literally in three days. So now I'm going to purchase your book and read that I'm sure in three days, but um, she'll be a guest in our podcast is called um, um, made into mother by Barbara Wilson. It was just, that's what inspired me because there's this ritual to kind of leave behind all your insecurities that you have as a maiden and transition into being the wise mother. Cause I don't want to be an unwise mother. I don't want to be, a giant baby <laughs> as I get older mm-hmm. and being a mother when I'm mature emotionally. So yeah, I'm excited for my forties. I'm not, I'm not afraid and I'm going to embrace all of the wrinkles and all of the wisdom that my body then <laughs> transpires into what it is. That is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think it's important because our society does not embrace that. They very much are trying to freeze themselves in time. And again, it goes back to this narcissistic patriarchal concept of like be this teenager be this 20 year old so that you're always loved and that's something that's just not healthy well and you know as you're speaking about patriarchal culture and narcissism i think the other thing is that in my experience the whole thing about a narcissist is everything else and everyone else is a reflection from their perspective is a reflection of them and so it makes total sense that there is this attraction to the young, naive, probably doesn't have very good boundaries yet, <laughs> um, sort of part personality that is pretty and, you know, is something that then the narcissist gets to be like, look what I have. 
And so it's all about the reflection, the reflection on them. So it makes total sense that we that that considering the pervasiveness of patriarchy and narcissism in our culture, that the young, pretty, naive woman with no boundaries and who is still very, very invested in you like me uh, is is kind of the the ideal that is held up. Yeah, because they can manipulate them, they can control them. And, you know, all of us women who are maturing into our motherhood, we're like, we don't give a fuck. And so they can't Mm -hmm. control us. They can't tell us what to do. And we're gone. We're like out of there. Right. Right. And a lot of us, uh, you know, listening, um, we identify as empaths. So I wanted to get into what is the difference between identifying as an empath and the concept of empathy? I would love to talk about that. So first off, I just want to say that in my experience, there is a spectrum. And in that and that on one side of the spectrum, you have either the narcissist or the um, sociopath. You know, I mean, even probably I'd say the sociopath is probably past the narcissist in terms of the spectrum. But you have the people who are completely, completely, they have no sense of other people. They have no sense. Every if anything, other people are simply a reflection of them not but they don't necessarily have any sense of it and then you have on the other side what i call the extreme empath who are the people who are picking up the thoughts the feelings the energy the sensations the and all of it either from people in the world around them or in some cases from the entire world around them and what i have seen is that the thing that makes an empath an empath is that unlike somebody with intuitive abilities or psychic abilities, not only does the empath receive information because psychics and intuitives and mediums are all receiving information, but the thing about the empath that makes an empath different than other kinds of sort of um, extrasensory perception, people with extrasensory perception is that Empaths generally experience the emotions and even the thoughts as if they are their own instead of knowing that they are picking something up from the outside world. And so what I have noticed is that when you are an empath without any effective filters or shields and picking up all of the energy, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations that are coming at you, that basically it is, it can be very hard to have perspective because it's all being filtered through the self. And I'll give you an example of this. I have a woman who is just very dear that I work with, who has a friend who's been dealing with some pretty major health issues. And a little while ago, this the woman that I work with was noticing that she was starting to experience a lot of thoughts about her health and about her longevity and about just fears of what could happen to her. And she happened to speak to this friend of hers who's going through this health crisis about, you know, maybe 24 hours after she noticed this sort of like, I don't know, upsurge of emotional energy. And she started talking with this woman and every single thing that was coming out of this woman's mouth were the things that she had been thinking as if they were her own. And she has a strong enough connection to this woman that she was basically processing the fear and processing the thoughts that this woman was going through. But instead of it being, 
oh, I am picking up on this person's stuff. What she what she did was thought it was her own. So this is a really strong example of how as empaths, we will pick up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensation, but we don't filter it as if we know it's somebody else's. We filter it as if it is our own. Hmm. And yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's almost like telepathy. Like that is a really, truly a thing because she was picking up this energy and these thoughts before she spoke to this friend who she's connected with. Before she spoke to this friend. Now, I think personally, telepathy is again different in that telepathy is generally, you know, you're receiving thoughts from somebody else. And so telepathy is that ability to perceive somebody else's thoughts, but you're not perceiving them as if they're your own. Whereas what I've seen for empaths is that empaths generally pick things up as if they are their own. So you might, so it's like seen through the filter of if you were, and when I was a very small child, I was actually not very small, I was nine. I had my very first prophetic dream the night that my very first best friend's mother died of breast cancer. But instead of dreaming about my best friend's mother dying of breast cancer, I dreamed of my own mother dying. And so there's that's the thing about empaths is that we often have a very hard time distinguishing between what's ours and what's not ours whereas a lot of of other clairs and um, extrasensory perception there is that understanding of the distinction now i do want to say that if if somebody's listening and they're like yeah but i'm psychic too it's very very common for people who are empathic or who are empaths to also have other clairs, other psychic abilities, other intuitive abilities, um, even mediumship abilities, that it's not just a you're one thing and one thing only. It's very common for empaths to also have the capacity for telepathy, to also have the capacity for clairvoyance. What I have noticed about empaths is that Often what happens is we will receive information through the dominant sense of the people who are around us. So if we were around somebody who was very visual, we might be getting visions. If we were around somebody who was very auditory, we might be hearing or picking up information, um, thinking, sort of thinking in words. If we are around somebody who's very kinesthetic and very, just very emotional, it may come through as a very emotional felt sense. So that's one of the things about about empaths is that often we are experiencing things not even necessarily through our own dominant sensory awareness, but actually through somebody else's. And so a lot of times where people who are not as empathic might have one dominant clair of the in terms of like clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience, I could go, you know, you know, I'm I don't need to go through the entire list, but you have people who are, who have maybe one or two of those dominant senses. Often empaths are picking it up from multiple sensory arrays. Mm. And so this leads me to that question of, okay, so we're picking these feelings up um, from the other person and we're, we're thinking and confused that it's our own, especially when we're not aware mm-hmm. of this. And so when you get linked up or connected or pulled into the aura of a narcissist, 
then what we all know that narcissists have a very low self-esteem. They, the self-worth is, you know, in the toilet as well as, you know, that empath could also. So what is your perception of what energetically is going on when an empath and the narcissist kind of combine and intertwine? Thank you for asking me this question, because I absolutely love this question. And what I will say is that over the years, I have seen so many of my empathic women friends in particular get into relationships with narcissists. So I personally believe that one of the things that happens for the empath and the narcissist is that before it becomes a match made in hell, it is actually a match made in heaven because the narcissist thrives on the attention and the strokes that the empath is giving them. And the empath thrives on the feelings of elation and delight and joy and pleasure that the narcissist is experiencing. And the narcissist often, we've got the honeymoon period with narcissists where they are charming as all get-go. They know exactly how to find the way to acknowledge or meet your needs and they dial it in and they take great pleasure in fulfilling your needs. And so there's this kind of positive feedback loop that is going on where the narcissist feels great about the fact that they, that they've found this wonderful person and that they are meeting and fulfilling the needs of this wonderful person and the empath feels great because they're fulfilling the needs of this other wonderful person and basically they're in this in this loop of of validation and ecstasy and delight what I have noticed happens. And so, you know, as human beings, this looks like a great deal. It feels absolutely wonderful. The narcissist is absolutely delighted and happy. And the empath is also delighted and happy. And what I have seen is that generally in my travels, and you may or may not agree with this, that usually what happens is that the relationship goes sour when other priorities, especially children, show up for the empath and she or he or they can no longer basically make the narcissist their 24-7 raison d'etre. And mm. what I've seen happen is as the narcissist moves away from the spotlight or, you know, or the soul spotlight for the empath, then they start acting out. And many years ago, when I was in graduate school, I learned this sort of, you know, psychological factoid that has, has, has stayed with me my entire life. And that is that for human, human beings must be in relation. We are absolutely built for, we are wired for connection and we are wired for family. We are wired for tribe. And the thing is that it is actually more harmful to a human being to be neglected, abandoned, and disconfirmed than it is to receive negative attention. And so 
as you were saying, and uh, you know, the narcissist is a person who has extremely low self-esteem. Generally, I mean, we're talking about a personality disorder. Most of the time, a personality disorder is the result of trauma. And so what happens is that you have somebody who is being deprived or the source is getting cut off of the attention and the adulation that they need to thrive and survive. And then what ends up happening is that basically the disconfirmed or the person who is ignored will act out in order to get attention because we are wired to need attention and we actually will receive at least some kind of a stroke. Even if it is abuse, we're still getting attention. And so you can really see this in the pattern between the empath and the narcissist, because generally what happens is once the honeymoon has worn off and the empath is like, I got a life, I got things to do. We got kids now. We need to deal with the children. That is usually when the narcissist starts to sort of their darker side starts to show up. So that that is my take on it. I love that take. Yeah, that I love that explanation. And you're right. It's, you know, I think back to mine, I started working full time. So my baby was work and I wasn't home all the time. And then I know in the instance in his life, his career kept failing and it was dependent on his, I don't know what to call him, a narcissistic father, but he certainly was not the most loving and empathic father. And so mm-hmm. that you, there was like that toxic intertwining. He hated his career. He hated his life. He couldn't become what he really wanted to be um, on his own. And then I had my career. So I wonder if that whole thing became resentment. But then, like you said, like there's such an enmeshment, then you're kind of linked in this attention cycle. So instead of that euphoric attention at the beginning, it is try you're trying to continue to get that euphoric attention but it life happens and it's not possible you know for me i was always exhausted so i couldn't be up all night and he would resent that and yeah mm-hmm. it's like giant wanting what they want all the time 24/7 exactly exactly and and you know the empath and the thing is that the empath is not necessarily changing but the, you know, because the empath is sort of like, I think one of the things, if, if there is sort of a challenge or I don't know if I'd say fatal flaw, but challenge for empaths, it is our tendency to trust people and to imagine that they have the same level of um of loyalty and also of honesty that we have. And so I think that one thing I've seen happen for many of the many, many of the empaths that I know have been in toxic or found themselves in toxic relationships with narcissists, it's also that it comes as quite a surprise when suddenly the narcissist starts to pivot and their behavior really shifts from what you sort of fell in love with to now what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And you start to justify that bad behavior versus seeing it for what it is because you would never do that. So you're like, oh, well, they must, you know, just be having a really bad day. Or like I just said, they're really disappointed in their life path and their career just isn't being fulfilled. And I would feel deep sadness, you know, and trying to help him or support him or encourage him. And I would work 
harder to provide, you know, or whatever it was, or work harder to console him. And wow, yeah, you just just keep justifying the abuse. What I want to offer is, you know, I like sometimes people will talk about empaths being codependent. And I really don't love that term because I think it it tends to diminish a very complicated topic. But what I have come to see is that as empaths, if we if you accept that the ter- that the definition of an empath is somebody who is feeling other people's feelings or picking up or absorbing other people's feelings, the thing is that when the narcissist is feeling distress, we are also feeling that distress. Therefore, we feel a sense of urgency and a need to repair, rescue, and fix other people's feelings because bottom line, we feel better when they feel better, especially if we have not learned to sit with our own discomfort. And so a lot of times when the narcissist is experiencing distress, we're experiencing their distress and therefore we want to rush into rescue because it will make it will make both of us feel better. Hmm. Hmm, 100%. And I keep thinking about my open solar plexus in the human design chart which I think really attributes like that is the classic. Those who have the open solar plexus in their design charts that is exactly the definition. You feel immense pressure and urgency to fix it because you are amplifying mm-hmm. it and you amplify it. Like you don't want to feel that either. It feels horrible. It feels horrible. Yes. I found that sitting with it, uh, sitting in the darkness, right? Sitting in my underworld and like just really being uncomfortable has helped me be able to build up a shield now with the people around me. Yes. And, you know, my current partner, my children, like you start to kind of have that same interaction with those people. And it becomes unhealthy when you don't allow yourself to feel discomfort because you have to, because they have to work out their own feelings and you have to sit and be present and hold them rather than fix it. And that's really uncomfortable. But that has been the huge like growth and threshold that I've been able to accomplish to be able to, yeah, like just to not feel that anxiety all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that I've also noticed is that so frequently, the reason we get so distressed by another person's distress is generally because there is a part of us that it resonates with. And so often we have triggers that are making the discomfort even worse. And so in order for us to be able to really hold space for somebody's discomfort, we need to learn to sit with our discomfort and actually work through a lot of our own stuff that is getting activated and triggered. And that kind of leads me over to sort of the original question that we had is sort of the distinction between like, what does it mean to be an empath versus what is empathy? Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was just going to do the exact same thing is, okay, now we've really dived into, you know, we all relate to all of these feelings and this discomfort. Now, what is empathy? And sometimes you, you mentioned empaths don't have empathy in certain moments. So I'd love to talk about that. Well, and, and so the, so my understanding, empathy 
is the capacity to perceive another being's discomfort, distress, experience, whether it is joy or sorrow. You know, it could be on any any level of the spectrum, but empathy is that capacity to behold and perceive that other person's experience and to imagine ourselves in that position, to be able to like like put ourselves in that person's shoes. But the thing about empathy that is different than being an empath is that there is the recognition that this is not us. There is a capacity to have empathy for another person's experience while simultaneously understanding that the feeling is theirs, not ours. And so as a result, as an as as a person with a great deal of empathy, we can cultivate, or a, or a person with a great deal of empathy can cultivate a great deal of compassion, can cultivate a great deal of love, and at the same time, maintain an energetic, more energetic boundaries and have a greater sense, they have a sense of filters and shields. And what I think happens for empaths is that empaths often are not distinguishing between self and other. And it's very hard to have empathy for another human being if your experience is getting flooded by the by the by the emotional intensity of it but you're just reeling from those experiences so what often happens for empaths is that they are so overcome by the intensity and the emotions and just everything that's going on with with the world around them that they're just trying to put out their own fires and being able to have sort of that compassionate detachment that empathy allows is almost impossible. So there may be a capacity for a great deal of love, but there isn't the capacity for detachment. And often there isn't the capacity for boundaries. And so empathy is a quality that empaths really benefit from cultivating. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, in order to cultivate true empathy, we absolutely need to be able to start to recognize, and that is the first step in empathic mastery, is recognize what's ours, what's not ours, and to be able to discern and distinguish when another human being is going through an experience. I noticed I had an experience um, back in back right when the war in Ukraine broke out where I knew that I was getting really flooded with empathic overwhelm because I suddenly started to I was watching some of the footage of of people leaving the city with their you know with their cat carrier and their dog on a leash and I was suddenly like mentally transported into this image of me with my cat carrier and my my dear dog I've got a little pug named Lilu and, you know, Lilu on a leash and I'm walking down my own road in my own state, in my own country, Hmm. imagining that I have just lost everything and I am completely bereft. And I had enough capacity because I've done this work for a long enough time at this point where I was kind of like, you know, it's, it's very, very likely here that this is, this is not about you, honey. But it was really interesting how much that empathic overwhelm had me filtering the experience through my own lens. But 
fortunately, I was able to sort of pull, dial back and give myself perspective and say, there is a really, really big difference between what you are experiencing watching this on the news, Jennifer, and what these people who are actually going through this experience are going through. And so I was able to, by getting that recognition of like, this is not mine, I am not the person going through this, and then really focusing on cultivating gratitude about the fact that I was safe, that I am okay, that I am protected, and that I, you know, that me and my cats and my, my dear pug and my husband are all safe, safe in our world. And so, um, when it comes to the distinction between sort of getting flooded as an empath and really just taking on all that empathic overwhelm, I think that cultivating, culti you know, first focusing on really being able to recognize what's ours, what's not ours, and discerning whether we're experiencing something as that is actually our own experience or if we are picking it up from somebody else but then really working on cultivating empathy for the people who are going through it and compassion and sending love and detaching from the emotional intensity that that is coming but also i find that cultivating gratitude can make a really big difference. So instead of sort of spinning out into my fear and awfulizing and imagining myself going through what people in Ukraine were going through, I was able to really, really turn, sort of pivot towards gratitude, which really allowed me to gain more perspective. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And as you were talking through that, you know, I've experienced certain times where I feel overwhelmed as well. While I'm watching something like that, or my daughter always jokes, I cry in every movie, any type of emotional circumstance, and I'm crying, and she's like, stop crying. I'm like, you know, but that, I and I feel like inside, like, I'm just very, you know, I have a lot of empathy, but I think that's the interesting thing to talk about this whole trigger point. Like, yes, I'm an empath. I cry in movies. So where's the unhealed wound that's making me cry? Like, where's the trigger mm -hmm. versus being able to not cry? You know, in certain circumstances, I'm far removed from my children's struggles. So when I hold space for them and I have empathy, I'm not crying at all because it's not a trigger for me. And I think a lot of us see people crying and say, oh, well, they have a lot of empathy. And if they don't cry, then they don't have any empathy and they're cold hearted. Uh, but I think that's false. Do you agree? I agree. I think that is very false because I think that empathy is not maudlin. You know, it is it is not extremely emotional necessarily. And and that we can be very have a great deal of empathy for what somebody else is going through and offer a great deal of compassion and love, but from a place that is very grounded and very still and very quiet and not particularly demonstrative. So, you know, and you were talking about crying. I think that also when it comes to sort of crying at movies, there's like the movies, there's just the crying because we're so deeply moved by something. Like I was watching like an expression of love can make me cry because it's just, there can sometimes be things that are just so deeply moving. But then there's that crying because there's something that is really resonating. And I also think that our culture has become more and more proficient at manipulating human emotion because what 
human beings tend to make decisions based on emotion, not reason. And we can be manipulated with emotion to purchase things. And so within a patriarchal, you know, consumerism, consumer-based culture, there is a certain amount of bringing people into heightened emotional states and then sort of hitting them with that double whammy of since you're now feeling this intense emotion, you need this chocolate bar or you need this, you need this new car or you need this beer or you need this whatever or yeah. you need this medication. And so I think, unfortunately, there is also quite a bit of knowing how human beings work that the media has learned that manipulates human emotion as well. Yeah, they know how to hit you with that music right at that perfect Right point. there. <laughs> yeah. Right there. I know. Oh, it's true. Yeah. That is yeah. a good example of that too. You're right. <laughs> that is a perfect example of a manipulative way a narcissist and the narcissistic culture manipulates us, you know, tricks us into feeling something right? That whole time I would always feel something. I would feel like, oh, you're right. You're my savior. You know what I need. And I would just go right into buying whatever he sold and believing that and Mm -hmm. being completely opposite of what I needed, having, having buyer's remorse, having been isolated and separated from friends, losing friendships. And yeah, just depending on the most toxic person in my life. Absolutely. Well, and I think the thing is that, you know, as human beings, we also imprint on the patterns within our own family system and the patterns sort of that we've we've experienced as a result of our own difficult life experiences, aka trauma or, you know, traumatic experiences. And so the narcissist is often dialed in precisely to what will get you to jump as well. So like, I was in a relationship when I was much younger with a very stingy, very, just not a very nice person, but definitely a narcissist. And he was hypercritical. So I was constantly, and that brought up all of my sort of um, uh, child with potential, but not neurodiverse, uh, you know, sort of the whole, uh, you know, like... um, within, it's interesting, within sort of the um, ADHD spectrum, but I think there's a very fine line sometimes in terms of some of the things that people with attention deficit and sensory processing issues have and empaths is that there is a phenomenon called um, the uh, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And I think that empaths are very, very, very sensitive to criticism and very sensitive to sort of not doing it the right way. And so a lot of times, you know, the narcissist is going to be like, they reel us in with praise and, and validation and affection and acknowledgement. And then when they start kind of weaning us off of it and depriving us, then we're just really completely invested in trying to regain that affection and that validation and that attention. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They they are smart and that's why it's difficult to recognize it and it's difficult to leave and there's no shame in trying to leave more than once. I took me eight times. The average is seven. So everyone who's listening, give yourself grace. Just keep listening to this information and educate yourself and understand, you know, each little light bulb will turn off. And then all of a sudden one day you'll be like, you know, or like each little door is going to unlock 
and you know, you'll be able to escape the labyrinth of their maze. Absolutely. And I love that you were saying that that it takes upwards of seven times to leave because the other thing is that it takes resources to get out of a, uh, especially if you are financially enmeshed with somebody, it takes resources to get out of a situation. It takes strategy. It takes planning. It takes anticipating things. And if God forbid, there is also domestic violence involved in the situation, then it really does take planning to get out of it. And anybody who says something like, why didn't she just leave, does not understand the incredible complexity of the situation and the precariousness of a situation, especially if there are children involved, if there is financial dependence involved, if there is a number of things. And I will say, agree, say that Often, in my experience, it has taken quite a bit of effort, energy, and time to dismantle and untangle from from the narcissist-empath relationship. Mm. I'll also just comment that I've seen numerous times in my conversations, and especially in working with a number of people, the frequency of, of empaths with narcissistic mothers, but particularly not necessarily the self-aggrandizing narcissistic mother, but the victim narcissist mm. that there's because, and that was a revelation for me when I discovered that narcissists, there's many flavors of narcissists, <laughs> but there's the victim flavor. Totally. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, gee, I recognize some people in that. Um, but that we get groomed, you know, often as empaths, we are groomed from a very, very early age to accommodate the needs of a narcissist. Mm -hmm. And especially we are, you know, and there's that saying trauma bonding, like we will often trauma bond with a narcissist. Like, sadly, we're kind of two, we're bookends in an equation where we're sort of where, and I also believe that ultimately the narcissist is looking for healing in the same way that the empath is looking for healing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. They just are stuck. You know, I really do think they're, and I think they're choosing to be lazy because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work it to heal. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. And they it think does. that sucking the energy from the empath is going to heal them. <laughs> right. Well, and it also takes a lot of courage. And I think the other thing is that there's a lot of misconceptions in our culture about what recovery and healing requires. And a lot of people, I think, believe the idea of no pain, no gain. You have to dig into it. You're going to have to go into the deep end. You're going to have to dive into the worst of the worst and relive the experience. And I'm an EFT practitioner. Actually, I'm an EFT master trainer for EFT International. And so I both work as a practitioner, but also as a trainer. And one of the things that I teach I, I explain and work with my clients on and also really teach my students is we do not have to go into the deep end to do the work. But most people have a, the, under, the perception that to do the really deep work, that it's going to require reliving the pain. I will just say that in my experience, that is not necessary and that there are now we have tools and leverage to be able to do the healing work. So it, but it does require showing up and it does require the willingness to be willing to say, I'm going to make my own personal recovery a requirement. And that's where certainly laziness could show up. But mm -hmm. what I would say is in my experience, I think the laziness is often 
as a result of the fear of having to relive a very painful experience and not having the resources or the knowledge that there are ways of doing the work now that do not require us to basically go through the fire again. Yeah. Okay. I have a few things that came up. So it's like an onion, right? Like peeling away is like an onion and you start on the outside. You don't just like dive right in. Mm -mm. And so there, there are ways, like I said, that each little key doorway. Um, and also I think their avoidance of not going to therapy is part of that obsessive, right? MPD is an actual obsession. It is a fixation of that disorder. And so they're fixated on the negative because they're in the victim mm -hmm. mentality and mm -hmm. their ego is attached to it. So if they release that mentality of I'm the victim, this happened to me, you know, or, you know, the other thing to cover up their pain is I am the smartest. I am the brightest. You know, yes. I am the most grandiose person in the world. And we know nobody who's like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We know exactly who that is. I've talked about multiple times on the podcast, Mr. Mr. Name on your building, grandiose narcissist. And so if they let that go, then who are they, right? Their ego is really afraid. They let that go and it's like, I'm nobody. Now what? Now who am I? But that's part of the journey. Well, and the fear of, oh my God, you know, what if, what if they call me, like the fear of therapy, either revealing something, stripping away an identity, causing or calling somebody out to be accountable for what they are doing. Um, I just think like you're talking about somebody whose self-esteem is so profoundly low that they can, they don't have the well, they just don't have the resilience or the like the, the self-actualization to actually be able to look at themselves and examine themselves because their sense of self is so based on these false narratives and this self-aggrandizement or this, you know, victim of the ages that the idea like to be able to like, they don't have the wellness to be able to be like, I'm okay, warts and all. Be and so I think that the thing about therapy is that it is so threatening because it might mean experiencing being held accountable and it might it certainly might actually like involve a certain amount of critical thinking that would call into question their whole whole defense system mm -hmm. and it all boils down to choices and you know your choices form your destiny your choices form who you are yes so you can choose to embrace your superpower of being an empath and not take it in as a curse. And you can also choose to not try and fix the narcissist because that's their job to choose to fix themselves. It's not your job. Exactly. Exactly. This has been such a pleasure and honor having you here, Jennifer. I appreciate you. Share with us your final thought you had. Yeah, I am. Um, I have a I have sort of a, a, a thing that I think to myself sometimes. And us not fixing them. I mean, I really think, oh, what I was going to say is that often there's this quality that I sort of have cultivated and I sort of learned it, especially with my nephews, which was when they were younger and they were trying to manipulate me into doing things or giving them things that I was not going to give them, is that I started to cultivate this quality of sucks to be you, kid. And I would say that, like, if you can find or access that sort of inner sucks to be you, kid, 
around the narcissists as an empath that can really help us. That, you know, another thing that I, I, one of my favorite sayings is not my circus, not my monkeys. And a lot of times, as well as um, another saying that has just that, that I absolutely love is your poor planning does not constitute my emergency. All of these things, like I have these sort of go-tos that I go that I will return to to help me to just remember I did not cause it. I cannot control it and I certainly cannot cure it. And it really is like it's better for me to let this person experience what they the consequences of their choices than to try to go in and rush in to rescue or fix the situation. And you know, I think that as we as empaths trust ourselves more, listen to our inner gut, because nine times out of 10, the other thing about empaths is that we know things, we just override those things. But that when we can really start to to trust what we know to be true, then we really can use those those sort of that spidey sense and that sixth sense to help us to make better choices for ourselves instead of, you know, falling down the narcissist empath rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's just, again, it goes back to self-awareness, education, and being curious. And being curious. Yeah. Instead of uh, putting up your defenses like, oh, that's too painful. I don't, I don't want to go there. Then you'll just stay stuck in your prison of, I don't want to go there. Right. Right. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just think it, like if we can focus on cultivating three things, curiosity, empathy, gratitude and discernment. So four things that we really want to cultivate in order to thrive as empaths, as opposed to finding ourselves just Mm -hmm. spinning out and trying to figure out how to make our narcissist happy. (laughs) That's the last thing that you want to do in your life. The last thing you want to do. (laughs) Thank you so much for your wisdom. This has been such a pleasant conversation, Jennifer. Oh, Raven, this has been such a delight. Like I said, this is really a passion topic of mine. I was thrilled when I had the opportunity to be on your show. So thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. And any other um, little summaries you want to share about your book? Um, I'm going to be doing like a little intro. I'm going to read your book and I'll do a little intro on my take on it. But if you want to share anything about your book before we say goodbye. Awesome. Thank you so much. So my book is the book Empathic Mastery. It's a nice hefty book. And it is a five-step system to go from empathic, you know, from emotional hot mess to thriving success. And basically, the book is broken into two parts. Part one is all about what does it mean to be an empath? Why are we empaths? How is this? How does this work? And I talk about some, some, I, I, I explain a lot of things in the first part. And then the second part is the five-step system of empathic mastery, which is recognize, release, protect, connect, and act. And I go into detail about all of this and I give a lot of examples of exercises and tools and things you can actually do to really, really start to turn your life around. And it has been, this is the system that I have personally been working with for a number of years that has really allowed me to even in some cases, people look at me and don't necessarily think I'm an empath anymore because I am not registering the emotional distress that um, I think often people sort of mistake as the sign of somebody being an empath. So it was an absolute um 
it, it was definitely a, a labor of love to write this book. It definitely, it, it, there's just a lot of me in the story, in the book, a lot of other people in the book in terms of uh, examples and stories and explaining what goes on. And uh, it has been an incredible pleasure to see this book get out into the world. And if people want to actually get a copy of the book, you can head on over to empathicmasterybook.com to grab yours. And it is now in ebook. It's like Kindle form. It's also in um, paperback. It's also hardcover now. And I recorded the audiobook, so it's available on Audible as well. Yay. I'm so getting the Audible book. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. And I look forward to reading that. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you for your reviews on the podcast. And remember, always keep your unique light shining. Losing time, I'm fading fast I just wanna make it last Try to let go of the past I close my eyes, embrace the blast Sleepless nights and headaches stack Restlessness to hell and back What's my purpose, what do I grab? A slippery surface, a heart attack And sometimes you just gotta believe There's something that'll give you relief There's something that'll have what you need what you need we're broken it's tragic we're not all elastic but maybe there's magic believe you could have it and i know of sadness the anxious and pain